Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hey, Secret Service lady. What is it, Mr. President? I need to get out of bed. Remind me how my arms and legs work? Typically, sir, you just think about what you want them to do, and they do it. I knew that. You know what I was doing? What, Mr. President? I was testing you. What's on the list for this morning? Bowel movement and Twitter, sir. But not at the same time, right? Not after you sent my phone to Davy Jones's locker. I thought we agreed yesterday, sir, that it was not me who dropped your phone in the toilet on five separate occasions. Maybe we did, but you owe me $20,000 for all those phones. That's not how much phones cost, sir. Okay, what else are we doing today? What does this note say? It's in your handwriting, Mr. President. It says, find out about scientists. Yes, it came to my attention yesterday that we have a lot of scientists working for the federal government. And do you know what scientists do? No, sir. What do they do? I was asking you. I never really thought about it before. Do you suppose they sigh a lot? Is that why they're called scientists? I doubt it, sir. All right, I've got a nation to run here. I need to get down to the Oval Office. Go check the elevator. The elevator is fine, sir. We've checked it several times today. I know you're a little bit afraid of stairs, so... No, never say that. Look at me. I am not afraid of stairs. I go willingly onto stairs. But stairs are a death trap. I can give you four reasons. One, germs on the handrails. Two, monkeys live under stairs. There you have it. That's two reasons, sir. You know what, Secret Service lady? I think you're losing it. Help! There's a crazy woman in my bedroom! We'll get this all straightened out while you listen to some interview. And now he was out all night dancing with Marine Le Pen, Colin McEnroe. Well, that's not strictly true, but did you see that uh, there was footage of her dancing uh, with her supporters, like, dancing? She does like to shake that thing, or set shows, as she calls it. And that might be a fundamental temperamental difference between American and French politicians, because every American politician whose campaign I have ever covered at any level, upon losing has gone into the fetal position for like six to eight days. There's certainly no thought of going out and dancing after one loses. Um, so I know she's abhorrent, but she gets you know at least a tiny point for that. Um, the other thing I just wanted to quickly say here before we plunge into the show is that my favorite thing is that uh, she announced, I think yesterday, that the first thing that they're going to do is come up with a new name for the National Front. They're going to think of a new name. Because that was the problem, right? It was the, <laughs> it was the name, <laughs> National Front. That, that was the big problem that they have. It's further proof that rebranding is the last refuge of scoundrels. And so anyway, if you have a good name, you, you could just send it to them. I sent in, I can't believe it's not fascism as a possible new brand name for the National Front. All right, enough about that. Uh, we are very, we're very excited about who our guest is today. I can't believe we have Adam Gopnik on the show today, but I can also kind of not believe we've never had Adam Gopnik on the show. It feels like we have because we've discussed his essays on our Friday episodes, The Nose, and Adam's writing for The New Yorker suggests that he believes, as we do, that politics and culture are not separate topics, but kind of rivers that flow into the same pond. And when I say culture, I don't mean it in a kind of sniffy Dwight McDonald kind of way. Um, I mean, Adam once wrote an essay using the Fast and Furious movies as a way of explaining something about President Obama. If you listen to the show, you know why we would like that. Um, 
Plus, he knows way more about hockey than any upstanding intellectual really should. So uh, Adam Gopnik, who, of course, is staff writer for The New Yorker since 1986, uh, and he's been many things there, uh, and he's written numerous books. Uh, a special favorite of mine is Paris to the Moon, but he's also written uh, children's books. He's got an upcoming memoir uh, at The Stranger's Gate, Arrivals in New York, and recklessly, with everything that he has going for him, he has undertaken probably the most difficult uh, of all genres, the uh, the musical, the musical play. So the world premiere of Adam's play uh, with Broadway composer David Shire, The Most Beautiful Room in New York, will be running through May 28th at the Long Wharf Theater, directed by our friend Gordon Edelstein. Uh, and joining us right now from studios in New York, I believe, is Adam Gopnik. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? It was way too that long. That was long, was very long, long, on the whole flattering, so I'll yes, take it, Colin. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's the main thing. Um, one, t- one time I was being introduced before going out on stage to uh, do something on stage with Carville and Madeline. And whoever was introducing me was saying nice things about me. And we were in the darkness backstage. And J- uh, James Carville kept kind of whacking my thigh and going, you're winning. You're winning. <laughs> Anytime anything nice was said about me. Nice so. is said about you. Yeah, I feel, I feel I'm winning there. The worst I ever had was when somebody actually read my entire CV yeah. on the air, You know, which not only was insanely boring, but left me no time to speak. So thank you for not doing that. Right. No, I didn't mention your shellfish allergies or all the other things. Exactly. That were said to me. So um, well, first of all, let's talk about the musical. And, and I guess maybe, I mean, all joking aside, it, there probably isn't a more difficult thing to get off the ground these days than a musical. There, it's just a very, very big uphill climb. I'm sure David Shire, your collaborator, would be happy to tell you about how hard it is to get. Yes, a, you know, it's it's absolutely true, Colin. When David first approached me about collaborating with him on a musical, um, I had the bright idea. Actually, I was had an idea that my friend, the novelist Meg Wallitzer, and I had kind of developed together about a show uh, called that might be called Blue Island, and it was sort of inspired. Do you remember that old uh, British comedy, Passport to Pimlico? where they suddenly discover that Pimlico, the uh, working-class region of London, is an independent state, and everyone has to negotiate with them. Well, we thought, well, what if in the deed of sale of Manhattan to the Indians, it turned out that there was a clause that made Manhattan and New York City an independent nation? And what would happen then? This is in about 2000 and, I don't know, seven or so. And we brought the idea to David Shire, and he gave us a kind of baleful look, and he said, the problem is that's going to be out of date by the time we have the musical done. And I thought, what's he talking about, a year, two years? And eight years later, we are looking at opening night of the musical we wrote, which is indeed about New York, though uh, not quite the fantasy we had in mind. Yes, musicals take an extraordinarily long time to develop. Ours is, if anything, relatively has had a relatively short gestation, if you compare it to... Uh, um, Gentleman's Guide to Murder, of course, mm-hmm. was a Hartford yes. uh, gestated thing, or the Book of Mormon, which I think went through something like 17 or 18 workshops, or even something like Hamilton, which seems to us now to be an absolute force of nature, uh, something that just could never miss. But I do believe that they went through an entirely different book, an entirely different script the first time out. And I've spent a lot of time thinking, Colin, about why it is that musicals are so difficult. Um, 
and uh, I, I can sketch it out for you if that's if it's of interest. Sure, I actually uh, even had a little bit of experience in this regard myself, so I'll, I want to hear what oh, you tell have me. to what say. Was, uh, well, actually, first, first of all, my father did write, did write the book for a Broadway musical. I've written the book for one musical that was staged at the Ivoryton Theater uh, here in Connecticut. Nothing as prestigious quite as what you're doing right now. What, but what was I, your dad's? It was. You wouldn't know. It's called Donnybrook. It was actually re- redone by the Irish Rep just a little while ago, but it closed. No, after, I didn't. I recall when the Irish Rep did it because yeah. I have lots of friends at the Irish Rep. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It closed after like 65 performances. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So to explain to me why you think. And I, I also have to say that I, I think it's a hard thing to do well, too. There are fantastically talented people doing this. I go usually to the Goodspeed's new musicals workshop sure, in January right. every year. And there, there's tremendous people doing it. On the other hand, you know, the number of sort of completed projects that one sees where you sort of think, well, yeah, they got there. They really got there. That's a pretty small list. So why is this so hard? Um, few reasons. One is the obvious one, that it involves many art forms working more or less together, more or less in harmony. It's uh, music, not just uh, the compositions of the of the composer, but the orchestrations of the orchestrator. We have for our show a legendary orchestrator, Jonathan Tunick. The band has to play. Then you have to have musical, you have to have performers who both can sing and act. Uh, that's a difficult thing to find. Then you have to have uh, somehow have what's called a book, really a, a script, a play, that uh, manages to have the virtues of a play while stuffing them into extremely brief scenes so that the all the emotional and comic high points take place in the songs. Um, all of those things, the sheer composite nature of musical makes it difficult. But I think that's just the superficial reason that it's difficult. I think the deeper reason that it's difficult is that extremely difficult, everything is difficult in the arts, is that uh, there's something fundamentally unnatural about the whole business of musical, deeply though we love them and though they're the great American popular form. Uh, you're asking people to accept a convention where at moments of high emotional pressure or high comic imagination, they sing. It's not like an opera, right? Where you walk into an opera, everybody is singing all the time from beginning to end. I once had a conversation with the great Stephen Sondheim, and he was sort of disgusted with opera because it has such a low degree of difficulty. If you're allowed <laughs> to sing all the time, what's, what's big about that, right? You're just constantly writing notes, and people are singing them. In a musical, there's a kind of liftoff moment when not only the language, the, the script, the book becomes music, but where it must become music, where the only plausible uh, thing for the character to do is to sing out that moment. So finding those liftoff moments and making them credible to the audience and making them credible in a consistent way so it's the same kind of moments provoke song throughout the play, that's incredibly difficult as, uh, as an artistic endeavor. And then you're trying to do two things at once. You're trying to divert an audience with, you hope, wonderful music and entertaining lyrics, but you're also trying to tell a driven, narrative-propelled tale. And each song that you land on has to contribute to the narrative propulsion of the story. It's one of the reasons, Colin, why I think that even inspired uh, pop songwriters of the kind of post-Beatles Dylan generation like uh, uh, Paul Simon have struggled to write effective musicals because sort of the natural mode of the the post-Bob Dylan Beatles uh, pop song, even in a genius like Joni Mitchell or Leonard Cohen, is a kind of introspective soliloquy. That's Most of Joni Mitchell's greatest songs are introspective soliloquies. You can't have too many introspective soliloquies in a musical. In fact, one probably slows the action <laughs> down to a syrupy-like pace, which makes it impossible 
to move on. Yeah, there's not so gonna, there's not going to be a Joni Mitchell musical. Uh, although I I will say that I think the Cape Man by Paul Simon is actually a, probably a better musical than its reputation would suggest. I also think uh, Adam that you know another thing about this is that the the engine of the audience consumption was a better oiled in the day when the, the people who wrote musicals were Jerome Kern and, and Irving Berlin and the Gershwins and Cole Porter and Richard Rodgers and Rodgers both Hammerstein and Hart and so you had essentially the Lennon and McCartney's uh, of their time you know contributing just all the time to that field that was what popular music was and the audience was very used to going to a musical where people sang so that convention was more easily consumed now you know the, people who go to go to see Hamilton might be seeing the first musical live that they've seen in 5 or 7 years that that's that's very true although we we should add about that and that's certainly one of the great transformations in american popular music in the past century is that we no longer get our pop music plain and simple from broadway as everybody did 70 years ago but you know my heroes in all the world of american song and i think american song is the greatest accomplishment of american life are rogers and hart richard rogers and lorenz hart and the songs are not just evergreen, but golden and classic. But the shows, when you go back to them, and I spent a misspent adolescence digging up in Montreal, where I come from, you know, old scratched copies of The Boys from Syracuse and By Jupiter and all of these other Rogers and Hart shows, they were more like um, television comedy reviews now than they were like fully developed shows. So they're very hard to revive in that way. So when I'm talking about the musical, and I think we're talking about the kind of post-Rodgers and Hammerstein, fully continuous, almost sung through, dramatic musical. The musical we've written, The Most Beautiful Room in New York, which opens this week, as, as you mentioned, is really, I think, in lots of ways, a musical comedy in the old-fashioned sense. It's funny, I hope, and it has a kind of comic resolution. It has some extremely dark moments, and it has, I hope, a fairly... Uh, uh, palatable, not a terribly medicinal political uh, agenda, political platform that it articulates, but it has many of the elements of musical comedy rather than something like, um, oh, I went in Hartford, I saw um, uh, Nearly Normal not long ago, wonderful production. That is and a that nice is production. not a music, yeah. lovely production of a fine play, but I don't think we would call it a musical comedy in that classic no. sense. I had the weirdest reaction to that show. I've seen it twice. I saw the Alice Ripley or whoever it was who defined that role. The original, right. And then I saw the one the next to normal that you saw in Hartford. And in each mm-hmm. case, like I'm, I'm sitting there sitting there at that musical and I'm thinking, I shouldn't like this. There's a lot of reasons why I shouldn't like this. And, you know, really when you get down to it, the score isn't mind-bogglingly great, you know. And in the second act of that thing, I just come unhinged every time. There is something, there's a real power to that script and the way that the music interacts with it that I'm hard-pressed to put my finger on, but it just... I love that... One song, um, I Miss the Mountains, I yeah. think that's, a, that's yeah. a fantastic song. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a kind of inherent credibility about it. I have no idea, and I'm sure everybody knows it, but I don't, about the life stories or life histories of the people who wrote it. But there's a kind of core credibility about the tale of the mad mother yeah. and, the, oh, and yeah. the miserable family that is is you respond to. You know, it's funny, Gordon, you mentioned Gordon Edelson, he's a good friend of, of yours, of this show, and... All the, the only thing that Gordon sort of ever says to me as we've spent years and hours sharing a, a, a desk, a table, while we watch the show being tried out and workshopped, and Gordon will lean over in a very intense way and say, do you buy that? Do you buy that? Do you believe that? <laughs> in other words, that the, only, the core question at every moment, no matter how stylized or in some sense artificial because people are singing about emotions, 
or they're, you know, they're comic characters who are stylized in other ways. But the core question is always, do you buy that? Do you believe that? And uh, that's the question that musicals present with more difficulty, just repeating what I was saying before, than almost any other art form, and thus explains why they are so difficult. And that is you got to buy it, but you got to buy it while someone is singing it. And yeah. that's really hard. So speaking of singing, let's just hear a little bit. This probably is like like from rehearsals or something like that. But hear like a little bit of one song from Adam Gopnik's musical. Put down your coffee cup and tell your wife When the market's marked you up, you're always marked for life It's no amble in the park if you got goods to buy And New York decides you're not what it wants Then the market I'm ready to order my tickets. Uh, That's me singing. I yeah, say, you you sounds what you've done with your I voice sound is pretty amazing. Good, don't yeah, I? actually, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the most beautiful yeah. room in New York by Adam Gopnik, which is playing at a Long Wharf Theater. Um, I loved what you were saying before too about. I mean, I was watching an interview with Mike Nichols where he said there's two reasons to tell a joke. One is because it's funny, and the other is because it's you. And by you, he meant everybody, right? That right. you know things things work. Like, if next to normal it works, it's because we're sitting in the audience and everybody's had some kind of mental illness somewhere in their family. And we're going, oh, yeah, that's us. Uh, I would imagine that's also very much in your mind. You have to tell a story uh, about a restaurant in New York, but you have to tell a story that's us somehow. That's absolutely true. You know, I often say, because I write for the, not for the most part, but very often personal essays, and I always say the key, the alchemy of the personal essay is that the I has to become a you, just as, as you said, that I'm telling a story about me, my kids, their pet goldfish dying, and that I that I'm using has to become a you for the reader that we can not, not necessarily identify with, but uh, transform our own inner selves into that person. And that's certainly true about musical. Our musical, The Most Beautiful Room in New York, is, as you said, about the struggles of a little family restaurant off Union Square, uh, deeply attached to the green market. And the song we just heard is sung by Phoebe, the manager of the green market, in the show about the irrevocable, unstoppable market forces that totally have reshaped and go on reshaping New York uh, right now and always have. Uh, And it's about David Kaplan and the Kaplan family and their struggle to keep their little restaurant uh, alive. Now, very few of us own little restaurants off Union Square, but I I hope and I believe that all of us have something that we have dreamed that makes us very proud, this show for you, Colin, my own work at The New Yorker for me, that losing would be devastating. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if we understand at some level that life goes on, losing that thing we've built would be devastating. It's made doubly devastating for the Kaplans because it's their home. The children live, the the parents, upstairs above the restaurant. So I hope it has the two things. I hope it has the particularity of being about New York and real estate and the struggle to keep some soul in New York City in such resistant moments. Uh, I hope it has that particularity, but I also hope it has the universality, I pray that it has the universality, of all of us struggling to defend the little worlds we've built. 
Uh, let me ask you this. Um, I, I, anxiety in theater, I think, march hand in hand in a way that, once again, all, you know, everybody's anxious about whatever creative endeavor that they do. But there's, I mean, I don't know. You've been, uh, you know, a, a major name in magazine writing for a really long time and in book writing, and you certainly had your books reviewed. But there's something different, I think, about the critics showing right. up to write reviews. Right. Notices. They, yeah. We call them notices, yes, right? right? Have you got the notices yet? And yeah. we have that whole kind of... Uh, uh, hellish uh, uh, imagery that anybody who cares about musical theater has of people waiting at Sardi's for the notices to come in. And then everybody disappears, right, when they mm-hmm. find out the notices are bad, right? Yeah. And the poor authors are left alone with uh, with their wives and uh, or husbands and, uh, and, uh, and a glass of bourbon. Yeah, there is something uh, terrifying and, and, and intimidating about that. Um, it's part of the mystique. You know, the musical theater in America has lots of mystiques attached to it. And that's that's one of them. There's the mystique of starting out in New Haven. You know, I'm living right now in the Taft Hotel in New Haven. Uh, big you know, tradition very of, much, of exactly that, of course. Exactly. If not in the footsteps, then let's say in the bed depressions of Lerner and Lowe and Frank Lesser and many, many incomparably great figures. Um, so, yeah, you know, you go you go through that. For me, to be on, to be honest, Colin, this has always been something and not merely that I've wanted to do, but I've been obsessed with. I arrived in New York City. I've mention this to people. And in my new book, uh, At the Stranger's Gate, that's kind of what the first chapter is about. I arrived in New York City determined to write musical theater. I had written a sort of college show about the life of Vladimir Tatlin, the great Russian constructivist architect. And I was convinced that this thing was six weeks away from Broadway. Who didn't want a big show about Russian constructivism in 1917? Uh, They didn't, as you may have noticed. Uh, and I also had a cassette of songs that I had written and performed. Uh, and we knew someone who had once been to dinner with someone who was close to the sister of Art Garfunkel's psychotherapist. So we were sure that we would just get that cassette in and <laughs> Everybody start knows that guy. Everybody knows that guy. And that's how you think your career as a songwriter is going to get started. So it wasn't a peripheral or a secondary or in any sense a kind of, oh, let me try this. This has been a core ambition of mine, core passion of mine for my whole life. And I'm one of those people, my whole adult life, and I'm one of those people who obsesses about the musical theater, who, uh, you know, argues about Hart versus Hammerstein, early Sondheim versus late Sondheim. Is My Fair Lady, in fact, a great show or a terrible show and, and so on? And I've spent, you know, a huge chunk of my adult life reading and rereading and listening and re-listening to those things. So um, I make the most Lilliputian claims for my own presence in it, but my love and passion for the form has been one of the uh, the motivating forces of my creative life. Yeah. The answers are Hart, Early Sondheim. It's a pretty good show. Um, <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more. I can't wait to go down and see this now. I mean, I, I like seeing anything at Long Wharf, but I'm getting more and more excited about this. Let's hear that song again as we go into a break. It's no amble in the park if you got goods to buy. And New York decides you're not what it was. All right. We are with uh, Adam Gopnik. Uh, the occasion for getting Adam Gopnik on the show is The Most Beautiful Room in New York, a world premiere of his musical written with David Shire, wrote the musical Big and Baby, and is the reason that Talia Shire is not named Talia Coppola, uh, and lots of other things. Good. Uh, good, good trivia. I, I should add, Colin, that the voice we've been listening to is um, Darlicia Cersei, who plays Phoebe in our show, a fantastic she's singer great. and actress. She's terrific. Anyway, she's that's running through May 28th, unless they extend it. Assume that they won't. Uh, get your tickets before May slips 
away from you because that will be bad if that happens. So there's no re- way to study for your Adam Gopnik interview because there's so much to cover. And in the amount of time that Betsy Kaplan and I were pulling things together, he posted like 2,500 words about the American Revolution just like this morning. So, uh, so and there's so many things that I would love to uh, ask you about. I can't decide. Donald Trump, Gordy Howe. Donald Trump, Gordy Howe. <laughs> uh, this is, after all, Hartford where Gordy uh, ended his uh, Play, ended his career with his sons. Yeah, yeah with with Mark and uh, and yeah, Marty. Mark, Mark and Marty. Uh, and I actually, you know, speaking of music, I actually did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof on Ice with Gordy as Big Daddy and the two sons. And the yeah. Great show. sounds like a great show. Yeah, and, Rebecca and Le- Colleen. Right. No, Colleen. actually, yeah, she was in it, but Rebecca Lobo was Maggie the Cat. Uh, it was oh, great. Good so, um, no, I want to just talk to you a little bit about Donald Trump. I mean, if I go back four to six years in the Adam Gottman canon, you know, there's. You're just writing, always just writing about everything. Everybody has their favorite essay. Mine might be the learning to drive one. But lately, I don't know, probably like three out of four Gopnik pieces in The New Yorker at least have something to do with Trump. Do you feel as though Trump has turned you into a political columnist or that there's no way to write about anything without having Trump kind of leak into it? You know, the, my, one of my favorite lyrics in the show in Beautiful Room is uh, the mother sings at one point, uh, though I'm a reluctant pundit, slow to editorialize. <laughs> I have to say that many women's lives are touched by compromise. She's singing about women's lives, but it was a little wink to myself, though I'm a reluctant pundit. I'm a very reluctant pundit, Colin. It's not what I've ever done. It's not typically what I desire to do. But I felt from the moment of Donald Trump's ascension, first, that it was extremely serious and that he was likely to succeed uh, at a moment when everyone was saying or many people were saying that he couldn't. And then that I felt that it was ominous, uh, deeply sinister, that it was... uh, you couldn't. Um, you could neither laugh it off nor wish it away. That Trump represented something that uh, you know. I hesitate to use the F word. Fascism is a, a, a brutal and cruel and historically specific thing, but let's call it a kind of American authoritarianism that we had never been exposed to before, uh, and that it was a, that it the risks that constitutional democracy ran with Trump in power were simply far graver than anyone understood. Uh, and I feel that still. I've been articulating that uh, right along. And I feel, I hate to say vindicated, because the last thing in the world I want to be is vindicated about that. I would be delighted if Donald Trump turned out to be the, you know, the reality show version of Ronald Reagan. I might not share his politics or share his beliefs. I wrote at one point, Colin, and I think it still is true, that we always have to distinguish. You remember Woody Allen had that great thing about distinguishing between the horrible and the miserable. <laughs> um, I think we have to distinguish between the um, the sickening and the terrifying when it comes to Donald Trump. You know, re- uh, repealing Obamacare, I find sickening. It's, it's to use a funny uh, a participle, I just think it's wrong. But it's part of the ideology of large part of uh, the American right and they gain power and they have a right to try and do it. That's merely sickening. I think that uh, saying uh, I didn't lose by three million votes because there were three million fake votes cast or that Barack Obama committed a crime, which we know never took place. I think those things, that habit of lying, the uh, constant assaults on the, the foundational basis of truth and argument on which democracy rests, I think those things are not merely ominous, I think they're unimaginably destructive. And I think that uh, it's frightening how quickly we've become inured to those things, just as, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter's peanut farm, right, was a source of great fear to people. What if 
Jimmy puts the well-being of his peanuts before the well-being of the citizens. And Jimmy Carter went to insane lengths to separate himself from his peanuts. And then they said, yeah, but his brother is still in there with the peanuts. We went through all that. And now the Trump family goes around the world uh, benefiting the Trump organization with absolutely no uh, responsibility, with no, uh, with no transparency. And now we all shrug and say, well, that's how they operate. I find that all of that um, terribly frightening for the future of democracy. This is uh, the the moments that we're in are so uncustomary that I think we're all kind of getting and then maybe revising every 15 or 20 days working hypotheses about what's happening. And you could probably divide those working hypotheses into, well, there's a guy, Damon Linker, writing in uh, The Week. He says, uh, that Trump is so comprehensively ignorant of policy and history, so thoroughly lacking in a core of settled beliefs or convictions, that the Oval Office might as well be unoccupied. So that's that's sort of maybe one white working hypothesis. That's the positive he, view. That's the good view. That's yeah. That's the good view. You know that he just and I mean the bad part of that good view is it sets everybody else from Jeff Sessions to Betsy DeVos to everybody else is sort of free to do whatever they want to do uh, because this guy really, and Pruitt and people like that, because this guy didn't really have any core beliefs and he doesn't really know what's going on. Then there's the kind of more, this is a guy with a master plan. He's carrying out his master plan with the aid of his henchmen. And then the, the last one is, and it's one that you hear more and more these days. Um, well, actually, we had John Cleese on the show recently. I'll let John Cleese say what the last one is. When you're with somebody mad, the first thing that you notice is that you think you're going mad. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and that he's mad. In Britain, they call it barking, right? right yeah, he's barking. Right? Yeah. So, uh, is is your working hypothesis one hypothesis one of those three or a fourth? Uh, my working hypothesis is is that in a certain way we shouldn't dignify Trump by having a working hypothesis <laughs> about him. Uh, I think that we that uh, psychoanalyzing Trump is not terribly helpful. I wrote a piece saying, call him crazy, right? We have every right. When somebody does crazy stuff, you don't have to be a, a psychiatrist to call him crazy. We use crazy in a colloquial, idiomatic way that we all understand. We know when people are behaving in crazy ways, as he often does. Uh, you know, I think there's the sort of the positive read of Trump right now, and I think I wrote this someplace, is, is that um, he's sort of like the Ralph Cramden of the American presidency, right? You remember how Ralph Cramden was always, um, you know, threatening Alice and saying, you know, yeah, to the moon, Alice, to the moon. And she just stood there because she realized it didn't have any content, right? And you, the best vision you can have is that uh, Donald Trump is to democracy as Ralph Cramden was to domestic abuse, right? A lot of bluster and relatively little effect. I think that's a false comfort. I really do. Because power resides in the hands of the powerful. And uh, it's circumstances that tend to dictate how power gets employed. And to have someone who is reckless and potentially, not potentially, but uh, by a great deal of evidence, crazy, is a, it remains very dangerous. I just want to emphasize, Colin, because for me, this is the core point that I can't be said often enough. This isn't a real sense for me, not about political ideology in the mm -hmm. sense of left and right, conservative and liberal. I have many conservative heroes. I have written at length about Edmund Burke and Michael Oakeshott and Karl Popper and many other great conservative politicians, Disraeli. Um, this is not about those choices, though, wherever we come down on them. This is about the, not the difference between left and right. This is about the difference, as you said, between sane and crazy. It's about the difference between faith in democracy and faith in autocratic fabrications. It's about the difference between believing in 
the legitimacy of your opposition and constantly uh, criminalizing your opposition. That's the difference between democracy and autocracy. And that, I think, is what we're facing. And the heartbreaking thing for me is that so many people on the right in America, unlike their compatriots, unlike their colleagues in France, who acted strongly against a similar threat in France, uh, so many people on the right in America refuse to see that distinction or have refused to see it in time. Um, yeah. And I, first of all, I totally agree. I think it's very I mean, I know lots of conservatives who are freaking out about the same things that we're freaking out about. And a lot of them have to do with sort of that ability to discuss things in terms of some kind of consistent pattern recognition of fact. Let's listen to, to Donald Trump in his the famous conclusion to one part of his many part John Dickerson interview, because he kind of says it right here. You saw what happened with surveillance, and I think that was inappropriate. What does that mean, sir? Uh, you can figure that out yourself. Well, I, the reason I asked is you said he w you called him sick and bad. Look, you can figure it out yourself. He was very nice to me with words, but and when I was with him, but after that, there has been no relationship. But you stand by that claim about him? I don't stand by anything. I just, uh, you can take it the way you want. You know, out of that whole, I don't stand by anything. I think that's part of the struggle that we're having here is that, you know, if at one moment there's a fleet steaming towards North Korea and no, the next moment there's a fleet steaming away from North Korea, if we're dropping out of NATO one day and the next day we, are, we would never drop out of NATO, no one ever said that. You know, I was listening to Virginia Heffernan on a podcast over the weekend. And she sure. was saying, you know, these... It causes all these cortisol releases in our brains. You know, I mean, we get stressed out when these things get said and then we find out the next day that, that they weren't meant or that they had no particular, you didn't even have a 24-hour lifespan. And, and just the stress of parsing all that when none of it really seems to, to rise to the level of accountable statement is, I think he is driving us crazy. Yeah, I think that I think that's so. And, you know, you hear in the Dickerson interview, he made total wild Trump told a wild, obvious lie about Obama wiretapping him and and knows at some level and doesn't care. And I feel for John Dickerson, but I also sort of am uh, impatient with John Dickerson because at that moment you should put, I think, you should put a little bit of your career on the line and say, Mr. President, what you said was not true. What mm -hmm. you said was not true. Are you prepared to apologize for that lie? And put him on the spot. Make him answer that question, not the kind of, um, kind of Weasley question, well, do you stand by that, which enables him to back up on it. I, I think it's true. And I think one of the things that autocratic governments and dictators and of all intellect of all ideological stripes do that authoritarians do is assault the foundational basis of truth um, that was orwell's great insight about the way that authoritarian uh, states operate they make truth they discount truth to such a degree that you get exhausted um, believing in it. You remember that Winston Smith, the hero of Orwell's 1984, finally has to put himself to sleep saying two plus two equals four and <laughs> no amount of propaganda can make it equal five. And that is increasingly the, the position we're put in. And part of our obligation, if I may be a little bit uh, pompous, part of our obligation as citizens now is to say to each other over and over again, two plus two equals four. It does not equal five. You know, Timothy Snyder at Yale has this fabulous book called Tyranny, um, which um, in an odd way, coming back to the point, is reflected in the climax of our show, one of the climaxes of Beautiful Room. I know that sounds rather improbable, but it is, because what he basically says is the one power that remains to all of us when we're faced with um, evil, with things we know are wrong, is not to take part. We don't have to take part. 
We don't have to say yes. We don't have to participate in what we know are lies. That's kind of should be the minimal action of a citizen in a in a free country. But more and more, it becomes the essential action. Yeah. Timothy Snyder, by the way, has been on our show on a Monday, just as you are being on our show on a Monday uh, right now. Uh, it is a great book and very readable. And you can like buy it at the checkout counter and read it by the time Absolutely. you get out to the parking lot, too. So it's the it's the, um, you know, um, uh, you know, 50 little rules for life. Right. Of 2017. He's sort of like, he's sort of like the Rod McEwen of tyranny. You know? yeah, that's like, exactly. Like, yeah. um, all right. We're talking to Adam Gopnik right now. The world premiere of Adam's play uh, with Broadway composer David Shire. The most beautiful room in New York is up at Long Wharf Theater. It's going to run through the end of the month. So don't let the month slip away without you seeing it. We're going to come back. We have uh, one more segment, a little bit more time with Adam, and more things to talk about. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with reporting from France by Amanda Fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jacques Brel. Tomorrow's show features a meditation on the manicured grass of baseball diamonds. And now, back to Colin. We're talking to Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker right now. Not only is he from The New Yorker, but temporarily, at least, he's from the Long Wharf Theater, where his uh, new musical, The Most Beautiful Room in New York, is being done right now. Um, so, you know, I mean, we've got you on the air the day after the French election. You've uh, written powerfully and intimately uh, about France over the years. Um, you know, uh, reading your colleague John Cassidy's piece today, I was thinking, he mentions that 43% of Macron voters in exit polls were saying, well, they were basically kind of voting against Le Pen. And I find myself wondering, is this similar to our 2016 election in the sense that neither candidate was really all that popular, that ultimately people were maybe as interested in swerving away from somebody as swerving toward them? Um, no, I don't. I mean, all political elections have that as some part of their character, and we just tend to get amnesia about them. People were voting for Abraham Lincoln in 1860 in large part because they were fed up with the Buchanan administration and they didn't want Stephen Douglas, right? You know, it wasn't that everyone was saying he's the greatest man who's ever lived in this country. So all elections have some of that shape. I think, in fact, at least from my own informal, uh, hardly called polling, just sampling of friends and and thinkers over there, that Macron genuinely excites a lot of people, not unlike the way Obama did in 2008 here, because he seems extremely smart, which he surely is, and he doesn't seem attached to either of the two, what's called the elephants in France, the, uh, mm -hmm. the old Gaullist right or the old socialist left. So I think there's a reasonable amount of genuine excitement about Macron and not simply that he was the best alternative to Le Pen, which was true, by the way, Colin, in 2002 when Jacques Chirac ran against the senior Le Pen, Jean-Marie mm -hmm. Le Pen. That was certainly the case where socialists truly held their noses knowing that Chirac was a totally ineffectual president and went ahead and voted for him for another term just to keep Le Pen out. I don't think that's remotely as true this time. Uh, you know, there's also a built-in, I, I don't know how to put this well, there's a built-in um, prejudice against um, a liberal pragmatists and their victories. Had um, Marine Le Pen 
won a similar victory on that scale that Macron won yesterday, we'd all be talking about it as one of the great earthquakes, one of the validations of nationalism in the extreme right, and so on. But when Macron wins that victory, we immediately hedge it around and say, well, it wasn't really a victory. People were voting against Le Pen. He doesn't really have that overwhelming a mandate. And so on. I'm sure that would have been true, by the way, if Hillary Clinton had won with her three million um, excess, excess yeah. votes in November. People would not have been saying the next day, as we said about Trump, oh, my God, the world has changed. They would have said, what a measly victory that she she eked out. That, that's kind of built into the way we think about uh, political positions. Extremists always uh, impress us in their triumphs and uh, uh, moderates always depress us in their small victories. So I think that's built into it, but I think there's a lot of excitement about Macron amongst um, people. There's also, I should add, I think, a lot of a feeling that this is the last chance for the republic. France has had three failed presidencies in a row, uh, Chirac, Sarkozy, and Hollande. Uh, and I mean really failed. Mm-hmm. They, they simply were not able to execute any part of their program, and they were hugely disappointing as people. People might criticize Obama and say, well, he got relatively little of what he promised through. But everyone was impressed by Obama's conduct. I mean, every sane person was impressed impressed by Obama's conduct in office. It was a good moment for America. With the last three French presidents, they were failures as politicians and they were failures as public men. And I think that that's, uh, that creates a kind of crisis. And Macron can't be one more failure of that kind. I think another reason we react differently differently to victories by those two kinds of politicians is, you know, the politician who wins is the dog who chased the postal truck and caught it. But if you're kind of a centrist and, and somebody who's essentially trying to manage or reconfigure and then manage the existing system, you really are that dog who caught the postal truck and maybe doesn't exactly know what to do with it. If you're an extremist, if you're Trump or Le Pen, everybody knows what you're going to do. You're going to swing for the bleachers. You're going to do all this stuff that, you know, is basically kind of terrifying. And it's either going to work or or it isn't going to work. But you're going to get your chance to do all your crazy stuff. And I, I guess that's true. You can say the centrist is more like the postal truck catching the dog, you know, because <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're right in the middle of it. I, I, yes, I suppose that's true. Yeah, can I add, though, something, Colin? This is something I've actually written about, that I hate the word centrist used for liberal reform mm-hmm. because it drains it of all of its um, significance. I, I once said that liberals, true liberals, uh, and when I think about true liberals, I think about everybody from John Stuart Mill to the good Lyndon Johnson to uh, Obama and beyond. Uh, liberals are radicals of the real, and that's what they have to be. In other words, they're people who take in reality as it actually is with all of its complexities and all of its difficulties and set about reforming uh, essential things. That was the spirit of Abolitionism was the spirit of Dr. King and the civil rights movement. It was to be radicals of the real, to pay attention to the complexity of the world as it is and still insist on reforming it. So I hate the term centrism because it implies a kind of wishy-washy, a little of this, a little of that uh, uh, messiness when the history of liberal reform is one of the most heartening histories in all of human civilization. We've gone an incredibly long way as President Obama used to point out, in our own country. A hundred years ago, blacks were officially oppressed. Women didn't have the vote, on and on and on and on. 
we, we go a long way simply through faith in liberal reform. So I never want to see it as centrism. I always want to see it as the realistic form of radicalism. You know, the only reason I would push back against that would be in the case of, I mean, Obama's a great case in point, all right? So mm-hmm. right now we're having this enormous debate about uh, the healthcare system, and it starts with this notion, well, the ACA doesn't really work. It doesn't work really work right. And I actually think it's true that the ACA doesn't really work right, but the fiction is it doesn't work right because it's not conservative enough. And the reality is it doesn't work right because it's not liberal enough. Um, and and if, you, if you think of Obama as a liberal reformer, the problem with that is that you start thinking of Obamacare as a liberal reform, which it really isn't. And it's one reason we can't fix it now is because it's completely misunderstood in terms of where it sits on that spectrum. Well, I think that's a fi- that's fair, and you know I'm a Canadian, right? So I'm yeah. I know from from socialized medicine and its benefits. So I agree with you that that was that Medicare for all was the I think the right way to go, and would or, have been a, or a public popular. option. A public option would have been fine. Right, yeah. I I agree. But look, the ACA works imperfectly. It works imperfectly, but it works much better. Millions more people have health insurance because of it than had it before. Um, I'll take that imperfect reform over its abolition and over a utopian desire for something that just wasn't available politically at that moment and continue to fight for national health insurance for the Canadian solution. It's insane. This is one of those cases exactly where I'd make the case, Colin, that it is again about being a radical of the real. Every single wealthy developed nation has been able to give universal health care to its people using often very different models to do it. But it's doable. We've seen it. It's empirically factually true that it can be done. Uh, so our refusal to do it or our, uh, the notion that it's somehow horrifically difficult to do, that's the illusion. That's the, that's the failure that um, the reformist refuses to accept. Um, I want to go back to the French election for just two seconds. We're running out of time sure. here. Um, and, and this may lower me in your eyes, but then it may not. Am I wrong to be mildly obsessed with the macron tronia marriage now that everything's calmed down? It can't, I mean, this is just such a fascinating story, sketched out very well recently in The New Yorker by one of your colleagues, Lauren Collins. By, by Lauren, who did, a, who did a terrific job. Look, one of the things that's attractive about French life, for me at least, is that they make the public-private distinction somewhat more firmly than we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was widely known amongst uh, the political classes, the journalistic classes, that François Mitterrand had two families, mm-hmm. two wives, two families, and he lived sometimes with one and sometimes with the other. But let's bracket whether that's admirable mm-hmm. or, or horrific, but nonetheless he did, and everyone knew it. And no one felt it was relevant to politics. I share those prejudices, I have to say. I believe that, except in those extreme cases where your private conduct intrudes unmistakably on your public conduct, I really believe in a public-private line. It's one of the things I admire about French political life, that they try to sustain it. So without being puritanical about it, because I'm as curious about other people's sex lives as all of us, I I, I don't think it's um, significant in in uh, figuring out uh, who's who. I think that Sarkozy, for instance, did, a, did himself a disservice by uh, uh, parading around his relationship with Carla Bruni mm-hmm. because it was so clearly ostentatious uh, and I think was objectionable to a lot of French people for that reason. But I, you know, I, the, when a French president, as Hollande did, puts on his motorcycle helmet and goes putt-putting around on his motorcycle to visit his girlfriend, I, more power to him as far as I'm concerned. Right. I think the solution with Mitterrand would have been to have Charles Corrault go over there and cover it. But see, we didn't know that at that time. You know, that <laughs> no, would have been. Uh, 
that 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 is so. By the way, I didn't congratulate you, Colin, on getting the answers right in the in the quiz before. It is early Sondheim. Yeah. It is Rogers and Hart. And My Fair Lady is, I would go one step above. It's a kind of wonderful show. It's got great, it's got, what, five, six great songs in it. So, I mean, five, that, six fabulous yeah. songs. And, you know, the other thing I've always said about it is, is that people forget it was a revolutionary show in its time because it was the moment when a couple of American Jews um, were able to take over British wit and better it. No Brit had been able to turn <laughs> Pygmalion into a musical. So it was a, a moment of cultural triumph that we overlooked too easily. All right, so about uh, two minutes left. I'll just ask you one last question. I'm glad we did circle back to musicals once again. The musical is The Most Beautiful Room in New York. Go see it at the Long Wharf or miss it at your peril. Um, Absolutely. You know, um, in terms of the overall shape that this country is in, um, are you feeling more anxious than you felt, say, 50 days ago? Less anxious that you than you felt 50 days ago? Totally numb? Feel- I'm always anxious, <laughs> um, so degrees of anxiety are, are all you know crowded over on the high end of the register. I feel less anxious, and I'll tell you why. Because and what I fear, what I sensed immediately on Trump's election was that it wasn't going to be a political act to uh, constrain him or defeat him. It was going to be a social act. We would depend on the enormous reservoir of social capital, small organizations, people talking to each other, marches. Uh, Resistance, but not violent resistance, but the resistance of minds. And the reservoir of social capital in the United States has turned out to be far richer and deeper, at least to my mind, than we might have feared. Um, you know, we're told that we're all alienated and anonymous people and we couldn't come together to, to speak. And that has turned out to be false. It was false the day after his inauguration when we had that extraordinary women's march, which all the women in my family went to. It's been false by look at the the leadership of the comedians of Saturday Night Live. Someone like Chrissy Teigen, the swimsuit model, has been more boldly outspoken than Hillary Clinton. I find that hugely heartening. I find the opposition of conservatives like David Frum and Brett Stevens, with whom I share no views at all, but whom I deeply admire for their willingness to tell the truth about autocracy versus democracy. All of those things have suggested to me that the reservoir of civic capital is deeper than some of us had feared, which is not to say that it's infinitely deep and can't be drained. Adam Gopnik, so great to talk to you. Uh, people should go see your musical, The Most Beautiful Room in New York. It's just like it's, my I mean, I had to. It's extremely funny. It's, yeah. The musical is funny. I have, been rather, I have been rather dark today, but the musical's funny. The musical's funny. It's just like My Fair Lady, except that it's the steel in veal stays mainly on the meal. All right. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to the musical. And it's been great to have an Adam Gopnik Monday. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for pulling all that together. We'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's conversation is about sports. But if you're the kind of person who you think you don't like sports, we promise we will make it humanistic for you somehow. Thank you, France, not just for not electing a Nazi, which entitles you to continue being snooty and condescending to Americans, but also for making all those movies with so much nudity. We really appreciate it.